0: Romans chapter 8, and uh, let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We stand for the word of the Lord, we sit for the word of the teacher. The reason why is one we honor, the other we tolerate. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, everyone say foreknew. Foreknew. Let's say it again, foreknew. Foreknew. And one more time. We're going to need that word in a little bit, so hang on to it. Put it in your pocket. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified... These he also glorified. Verse 31. Love this verse. What then shall we say to these things that we just read? If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that powerful? A God who predestines, foreknows, glorifies, chooses, elects. Um, We can go on and on and on. Justifies. That God who, who is beyond the space-time continuum, says to you and me this morning, I'm for you. No one and nothing can be against you. That's comforting. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. Just the reading of it, we could, we could conclude the, the day and, and continue to worship you through song, and it would be a fulfilling Sunday. And God, I pray that as my mouth opens to speak, that I would do nothing to hinder what you have so clearly and powerfully and profoundly laid down for all of us. But Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into all truth, that you would be glorified and you'd minister to your people as we prepare to take communion, to thank you and to celebrate your sacrifice upon the cross that has delivered us from sin and death unto an everlasting life in Christ Jesus. And so, God, we thank you and we ask that you would be blessed and that you would bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Now we were in Romans 8 and I jumped ahead to Romans 13 to kind of deal with some political concerns and covered that and now we're coming back to Romans 8 and we're at a passage that uh, is one of those passages you love to give to people who are sick or struggling or hurting and it's a passage that you hate to receive. You don't like it when people give you, uh, and we know that all things work together for good with those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Lord bless you, okay? Yeah. Well, I've got unbelievable medical bills. Can you help me? Well, hmm, all things work together for good for those who love God. It's one of those things we just throw out there. And, and, and the delivery of it from the person who is extending it is typically uh, the result of whether it has an effect or not in relation to our lives. We want to see if the, the message matches the man and the man matches the message. But it is a comforting text regardless of who delivers it to you. If you meditate on it, it's a very profound text because then not only does Paul lay this out that all things work together for good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose, but he goes on to talk about these these eternal truths that are so profound to describe God and his delivery of this promise. That you, you you rest in it. it is it it is it's got a triple A rating. When he talks about predestined, he talks about this idea of, of foreknowledge, and he talks about uh, justified and glorified and chosen, and, and this whole picture of of being predestined by the Lord. And then he 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 encapsulates it with that last verse by just simply laying it out. If God's for us, I mean, this God that we speak of, foreknowledge, predestined, justified, glorified. This God, AAA rating, lays all of his character and the embodiment of, of who he is as the mighty God who holds he- the heavens in the span of his hand. This God says to you, I'm for you. Nothing and no one can be against you. We've already won. And, and whatever's hitting you is working together for good. It's not good, it's, it, it's the thing that's happening isn't good, but what I'm going to do with it is going to be good. And you'll see. And you must trust me by faith and rest in that. And that's a comfort. And Paul lays that out. He lays that out. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he goes into this discussion about Israel, which is fascinating to me. But it's sandwiched, in a sense, with this word foreknew. And I had you repeat it three times, new," And we're going to cover that in a moment. But I want to take a look at all things working together for good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose um, if you've ever done any baking and you put all the elements out and if you, you've got your baking powder and you've got your flour and you've got your sugar, uh, you've got, uh, eggs, uh, vanilla, uh, you got, you know, chocolate powder or whatever you, I don't know. I don't bake, but if you lay out those ingredients, <laughs> I just eat. And if you, if you lay those ingredients out and you taste them individually with the exception, maybe the sugar and the vanilla, the rest is just going to be awful. And you just think, how could anything good come from baking soda? is you just have a mouthful of that. How can anything could come from flowers? You've got a mouthful of that, or a raw egg. You know, it just doesn't work. But as they all come together, and it, one may be bad and the other may taste good, but as they all come together, it makes a, a marvelous dessert that uh, my wife and I enjoyed actually last night, and it was wonderful. And, and this is the picture of what God is saying to us, that individually they're distasteful. But when they come together, it's the way that the Lord weaves this together as a tapestry in our lives. We look back and we see that he's worked it together for good. I can think of countless situations in my life, I've shared them with you, where I couldn't see anything good coming of this. Uh, many stories that, that you could reflect on and I could take the portion of the morning declaring that. I could use many of your testimonies. I've, I've used Tim Maddox. I'll, maybe I'll just touch on his. You know, Tim Maddox, when he's our missionary in Cyprus. And and Tim, it's a fascinating story. Tim's father was a, a very famous dancer named Matt Maddox who was in Seven Brides for Seven or Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Uh uh he was he was in a number of musicals. Uh he had he had developed uh a, a dance um style that revolutionized uh, the dancing world. And he was sought after and he was he was just a, a magnificent man that the entire entertainment industry Uh, just revolved around in many respects. Well, uh, Matt Maddox and his wife had three sons. Tim was, I think, the middle of the three. And he, uh, being in Hollywood and being a star, he ended up taking off with a younger gal from the choreography line or chorus girl line, I don't know what it was, and took off and and left the, the mom and the three sons behind, never to see him again. Uh, he ended up remarrying and actually having other children out of marriage. Tim had, had a half-brother. He met at his father's funeral. He didn't even know he had a half-brother. And shortly after his father's leaving, Tim's mother contracted uh, cancer and ended up dying, an awful death. And then the brothers were farmed out to family members. And Tim ended up out here in California at an age where, first of all, your father leaving is just devastating. And then your mother dying is, nobody's going to overcome that. Where's God and all that? Really? Where's God and all that? Your dad leaves? Your mom dies? How could anything good come of that? Devastating. And and the hurt. A boy needs his dad. Need that rite of passage to be told you're okay. You're a man. God wired us that way. How could anything good come of that? Tim ends up out here in California, bitter young man struggles, tries to get in the military, flops on that, ends up getting involved in drugs, heroin, a number of other drugs, ends up contracting hepatitis, ends up being arrested and put in jail. Uh, While he's in jail, uh, life is rotten. And then he comes to Christ. He would actually been married to an older woman, miserable life, comes to Christ in jail, the woman had left him, he was just down and broken. And when he got out, he didn't, he didn't have a friend in the world. He was a penny looking for change. Ended up at a Calvary chapel in the high desert. And while he was there, he, he started to grow in his knowledge of the word and studies and started to come to a place to try to forgive his father and comprehend and you know deal with the death of his mother and the heartache of his life and the misery and the mess he'd made. And, and he, he started to become really gifted at teaching. And you don't want to give a prisoner, or an ex-con, any teaching opportunities. And the only place that they let him teach was at the old age home. And so he'd go out there, and they loved on him. And he started to, you know, formulate his teaching. And he just wanted to serve other people instead of lament his condition in life and whine about it. He poured into others. And while he was pouring into others at this rest home, he became very gifted at that, started to minister in prisons and the like. And um, a ministry opened up that he could go to Russia. And he went over there on a short-term mission, really felt the call to stay there, and connected with Calvary Chapel Church Planning Mission in Moscow. Um, a woman who had, had been married, and the abusive husband used to beat the daylights out of her. Uh, she was a single mom, had to leave, never let the man know where, where she was, because if he found her, he'd kill her. She ends up in the mission field having come to Christ. She was a waitress in one of the you know like Hooters bars. And she ends up in Russia because it was the only ministry that would accept a single mother. She ends up being kind of the housemaid of the dormitory of the Bible college there. And Tim and Darlene, this woman, meet and fall in love and marry. And uh, they're asked to start and plant a church, and they do. And they plant a church in the outskirts of Moscow. Uh, The church grows, one of the strongest churches in Moscow. Tim and Darlene have two more children. Uh, both of them go into ballet and start te- you know, uh, dancing. One enjoys it. That's Abby. Emma didn't really get into it. And Abby became a phenom in ballet. Phenomenal. Well, a series of events. They had to leave the mission field. They came here to the United States. They lived with us for a period of time. I actually introduced my daughter Molly to ballet. Molly ended up becoming about She's a teacher now at the California Dance Academy as a result of Abby. And uh, Abby starred in one of the productions of the California Dance Academy. She was unbelievable. I mean, she's a phenom. She actually dances for the, I think, Finland Ballet Company as a contracted ballet dancer. Um, so she, she uh, she's there, and then Tim and Darlene come and say, you know, we really feel called to Cyprus. Well, going to Cyprus, it's an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. They have no dancing to speak of. And everyone at the California Dance Academy ridicules them. You're gonna ruin your daughter's career, blah, blah, blah. Well, she'll study on videotapes and the like. And everyone ridiculed them and and really pressured them. They end up in Cyprus. Uh, Obviously, there's no dancing. Abby's dancing starts to uh, wane. And um, then a man named... uh, I've always forgotten his name. Uh, Lombros, Lombros, thank you. (laughs) Lombros uh, is a man who wants to start a ballet company uh, in Limassol, the capital. And he's, he's endowed by the government to start a ballet company in Limassol. And Lombros danced for the London Ballet. Uh, phenomenal ballet company and uh, was renowned and that he would start that. They were going to start to develop. So Abby, you know, Rusty goes out and and auditions and doesn't really do as well as she could have. But Lambrose is moved by her name, her last name, Maddox, M-A-T-T-O-X. And uh, she says, do you know a Matt Maddox? She says, yes, that's my grandpa. And he said, you know, I wasn't going to select you, but I'm going to pick you because Matt Maddox was the only man when I was 16 years of age and left uh, Cyprus to pursue a dance career. Never had done it before. No one would give me the time of day. Maybe he was seventeen or eighteen. I don't recall exactly. But he, Matt Maddox gave him a chance, and because of that, he gives Abby a chance. Abby's full ride scholarship dances for limassol ends up at the, you know, Finland Ballet, and and um, and through that, ting got reconnected with his father, had the chance to minister to him before he died. Um, it was, it was recon, you know, reconciliation, just so unbelievable what God did in and through that, that God worked it together for good. It's a long story. I can go through thousands of those. I really can. But the reality is, and I love this poem, it says, For our short sight to understand, we catch but broken strokes and try to fathom all the mysteries, why, of withered hopes, of death, of life, the endless war, the useless strife. But there, with larger, clearer sight, we shall see this, his way was always right. There's a story about the fishing fleet that sailed out of a small harbor on the east coast of Newfoundland. In the afternoon, there came up a great storm, and when night settled down, not a single vessel of all the fleet had found its way into port. All night long, uh, wives and mothers and children and sweethearts paced up and down the beach, wrung their hands, and called on God to save their loved ones. To add to the horror of the situation, one of the cottages caught fire. Since the men were all away, it was impossible to save the home. And when the morning broke, to the joy of all, the entire fleet found safe harbor in the bay. But there was one face which was a picture of despair the wife of the man whose home had been destroyed. Meeting her husband as he landed, she cried, Oh, husband, we are ruined. Our home and all it contained was destroyed by the fire. But the man exclaimed, Thank God for the fire. It was the light of our burning cottage that guided the whole fleet into port. So, you can whine and complain or trust him. And there's a few words I want to focus on, but I want to tie the message in a limited time we have with communion this morning to something a little bit more intense. We see in the passage that we've read this morning a couple of words I want to focus on. One is foreknowledge, verse 29 talks about those whom God foreknew. And in the context, foreknew means to approve of beforehand. I approve you beforehand. And and the idea is it means that in eternity past, God knew he would approve anyone who accepted his son. He foreknew that those who accepted Jesus would be accepted by him. Predestined is another intense word, and I can spend hours on these. But I don't necessarily think that when Paul was writing this, he was consumed with Calvinism and Arminianism. I think he was writing to a church that needed to know God is solid and I can trust him in the midst of all the persecution we're facing as an early church. Predestined, the passage says, he predestined them to be conformed to his image. Once again, this deals with the fact that God decided beforehand that those who accept Jesus would be conformed to his image, that he would have a resurrection body. The idea of called. He says that those whom he predestined, he also called. The ones who are predestined to glory are those who accept the call of the gospel. The call is to everyone. You can read that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God desires all to be saved, and those who reject the call are lost, and those who accept it are saved. If you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. Justified, just as if, it, if I'd never sinned. It's this concept we've covered uh, in, in great detail in previous studies. The ones called are justified, it means that you're declared innocent, and that everything you do from this point on is right, and everything you did in the past is right. Strangely, strangely, that's what justified means. It's a legal term, and glorified is this idea that we, um, when it's all said and done, and Jesus returns, we're, we'll be glorified with Jesus. We'll be a brother or sister of Jesus. We will receive our inheritance in the full from God. Uh, what everything Jesus is receives, we receive. It's it's a great gift from the Lord. And all these are profound and very important concepts that I don't want to belabor, and we will at a later date, especially as we get into the latter portions of chapter 8. But I want to take the word for new and this idea of all things working together for good with those who love God and are called according to His purpose, and then the idea that if God is for us, who can be against us? I want to ask all of you, and you don't have to answer out loud, but in the quietness of your own mind, I want to ask you, have you ever done something where you were completely 100% wrong. I told you not to say anything. Well, you just lied, so praise the Lord. You're now part of us. Yes, we have. And some of us have made some of the most awful mistakes imaginable. I know I have. I'm probably chief in the room for failure and just missing it. Missing God altogether in the equation and thinking I, I, I was justified in my actions and in my anger and to realize I was so completely wrong. I couldn't have been more wrong. That's hard. In the ministry, there's often times that you, you make decisions and you make choices where you realize the effect it's had on other people and you realize how you've hurt folks. You realize how wrong I could I, I was. And how much pain I caused. We've we've done that in our families. Done that in our workplace. Just the awful decisions we make. The beauty of it is, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And the amazing thing is, is even in our mistakes, he uses them together for good. I have no idea how he does that. I don't know how God can be completely sovereign and still give man a choice. I don't know. In the same regard I have no idea how God can be three persons and still be one talk to himself and answer himself I don't know you say well it's it's like water you know water can be a solid a liquid or a gas okay and and rob it's like you you at all at the same time you're a father and you're a husband and you're a son oh okay but I'm not talking to myself and answering my I am but that's a whole other thing <laughs> That's Happy Dale kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> How is this possible? How does God do it? He's, he's eternal. We're temporal. We could try to fit him in a box and, and describe him and understand the fullness of his character, and, and I think we go a little bit overboard. We make him so sovereign that we, we, we lose this idea that God says, for God so loved the world, not just the called and the chosen and the preached. He so loved the world that all who would call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, How does he give man choice and still be completely sovereign? Does it take away from his sovereignty? I don't know. How does he foreknow? It's like he's getting tomorrow's paper today. Wouldn't that be great in the race, racetrack or the lottery? I'd be I'm in. I'd, 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 I'd want that. I don't know how he does it, but he does. And the whole concept that Paul is writing is to tell you and me that listen, you screwed up. Listen. You're, you're being persecuted. Yes, you have sickness. Yeah, you've you're, you're got some financial struggles. You've you got relational issues. The world has fallen, and we're all hurting. But God says, I'm for you. And nothing and no one can be against you. And even the miserable stuff that's happening, I'm working it together for good. The stuff that happens isn't good, but I'm going to work it together for good. Think about that. I mean, think of the myriad of eschatology. Eschatology means the study of the end times. What happens? Has Christ already returned? Is he coming for a second return? Uh, are we pre trib, pre millennial, post trib, post millennial? What are we? And every eschatology, as I've said countless times, every eschatology comes with an asset and a liability. Every eschatology comes with an asset and a liability. We have in our culture, especially in the early portion of America, we had uh, an idea of preterism, a replacement theology uh reconstructionist, where they believe that that the the second second coming of Christ occurred uh with uh, uh in seventy a d and and that our job now is to establish christ's kingdom on the earth and 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 that the church has replaced Israel, and when we establish his presence his church on the earth, then Christ will come and, and it'll all be done and that That was the early Americana idea. It's kind of a reformed position. And as a result of that... Um, they were working hard to establish his kingdom on the earth, and that's why they set up Princeton and Yale and Harvard and some of these these institutes of higher learning, and, and they, they came up with a New England primer, and the education was second to none throughout the world, and and the asset was they were highly educated, and they knew multiple languages, and they studied, and you, you look at what they learned, in just by the age of 13, you, you look at Uh, John Quincy Adams, he was an ambassador to to Catherine the Great in Russia at the age of 13. He spoke multiple languages. What are you talking about? Trying to get a 13-year-old to do that today. Well, kind of Donald Trump. But just think about this idea. The intensity of it. And, And so that was the asset. The liability was that churches became cold, boring in some respects. People started to drift. Uh, the replacement theology uh, was was a struggle. And, and we look at eschatology and we see these things. And it, and it brings us to a place where I think the church has gotten it wrong. I think the church has gotten it wrong. Pastor Chuck believed that he would witness the rapture in his lifetime. He got a personal rapture, but he literally thought he would see the rapture in his lifetime. He missed it. He missed it. A lot of Christians uh, throughout all the history of Christendom believe that they'd see the rapture in their lifetime. They got it wrong. I can think of a number of things the church has gotten wrong. A number of things. And yet God still works it together for good. How? I don't know. I don't know. But the reason why I wanted to focus on new and this concept of, of the Lord saying to his people, look, I'm for you. No one and nothing can be against you. I will work all of your mistakes, all of your struggles. I'll work them together for good with those who love me and are called according to my purpose. If you're willing to yield like Tim was, you don't want to fight God, but you want to surrender to him and trust him by faith. He'll work it together for good according to Christ. Better yet, hold on to your bitterness. Be angry that your dad left at 13 and your mom died of cancer and blame God and never let it go. And see how that works for you. In a fallen world where sin is, is inundating every vestige of, of this world. And, and God can remove sin. The only problem is He has to remove sinners. We're the ones responsible for it. But in His mercy, He allows us to exist so that when in that, those moments we're in a fallen world, pain exists, heartache is, is present, we can either blame God, and fight him for the portion of time we have on this earth and die separated from him, or we can realize that he is working it together for good, and no one and nothing, no circumstance can be against us. Because God is for us. And we rest in that. We watch all these things work together for good by faith, and we're blown away. Those are the two options. And Paul's writing to a church in Rome that that Rome has its boot on the neck of, of believers. And the persecution isn't just coming from from Rome. It is coming from the Jews. They are hunting down Christians. Paul himself knew about it. He was one who was enlisted to hunt down Christians. And Jews are persecuting the church. Romans are persecuting the church. The Christians are fair game for the world. And they're hoveling in these catacombs. And and Nero is about to come to pass. They're scared to death. And Paul's writing to them. And he's just saying, no one and nothing can be against you because God is for you. And all these trials are working together for good. And this is the God who's doing it. He is new. He, he predestined. He's glorified, justified. These are the concepts that you, in your feeble mind, can't even comprehend. And you try to do it, and it just sounds weird. But this is the God who has you in his hand. Settle in that. And as he's speaking to this church in Rome that is encompassed by a number of Gentiles, Gentiles meaning non-Jews, even then, anti-Semitism is beginning to rage in the church. These Romans are looking around saying, the Jews are responsible for my misery. And I have to tell you something, you'll never grow in the Lord if you hold unto bitterness and unforgiveness. And Paul takes chapters 9, 10, and 11 to talk about a group of people that the early church was really struggling with, and that was Jews. Jews. Uh, Even to this day, he tried to preach this message in France. He tried to preach this message anywhere in Europe. People are going to come out of the woodwork to tell you how they disagree with you. You see, in the New Testament, seven times... The scriptures speak about the new birth. 20 times it speaks about repentance and faith. The New Testament, 70 times talks about baptism. But over 300 times it talks about the second coming of Christ. 300 times it talks about the second coming of Christ. It's a groom writing to his bride. If I were writing to Michelle and I was away, I'd be talking about, I can't wait to come home. And that would be the theme of my desire. And the reason why I had us repeat four new, four new, four new, three times is because, look with me now, if you will turn in your scriptures, to Romans chapter 11. I don't know if I can do this in eight minutes, but I'll try. (laughs) Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Paul's speaking. After he's talked about Jews in chapters 9 and 10, and he's given us this picture in Romans 8, he says, I say then, has God cast away his people, meaning the Jews? Certainly not! Exclamation point. For I also am an Israelite. He didn't call himself a Palestinian, by the way. He said, I'm an Israelite. Of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, he goes deep into the lineage of his his heritage. And he says in verse two, God has not cast away his people, the Jews, whom he foreknew, 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 the same mighty God who holds you in the midst of a fallen world, he foreknew that these th- these people, the Israelites, were his. And I say this because Paul goes on. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? He was so sick of the Jews, being a Jew himself, he just said, "I'm the only one who's standing." God, do away with them. And and God goes on to say to the to Elijah, as he, he pleads with God against Israel, the Lord. Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Verse seven, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare, and a trap, a stumbling block, and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened, so they do not see, and bow down their back always. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. God's not finished with them but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. You see, this picture, Paul is saying to the early church, Jews are still God's people. And I say this because what you do with Romans chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 what you do with romans chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 is going to to determine your interpretation and perspective for the rest of your christian walk how do you view israel how do you view the jews according to preterism events like the rise of the antichrist the tribulation the rapture and the day of the lord all took place around 70 a.d the year that the romans invaded jerusalem and destroyed the second temple they say that israel now is set aside and all the promises pertaining to israel in the old testament are now replaced by the church israel's finished i don't read that in romans 11 neither did paul paul said i say then has god cast away his people certainly not For I'm also an Israelite. He didn't say he's a Canaanite. He said, I'm an Israelite. Of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Titus Vespasian, who is of Rome, who who destroyed the temple in 70 AD, and and it's prophetic out of Matthew 24, where Jesus said no stone would be left uh, on top of another. The, The gold from all the... The uh, instruments in the temple went into the crevices of, of the temple through the fire in the uh, uh, the, the Barcoba revolt, and, and the Roman centurions pulled all all the stones apart just to find the gold. Prophetically speaking, and 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 folks from this mindset of this replacement theology say that that this this is the second coming of the Lord, but Paul doesn't say that here. Paul says, I am a Jew, not a Palestinian. I'm a Jew. The word Palestinian came from the Romans. After they had destroyed the, the revolt of bar and, and and you saw Masada and we'll travel there in Israel. After that, after they had destroyed this nation of Israel and removed it, what they said is, we're not going to call the land Palestine, which was an ancient form of the word Philistine, to insult the Jews. So anyone born or living in this region that they now call Palestinia, whether you were Muslim, whether you were Druid, whether you were Christian, whether you're Jewish, you were a Palestinian and you were marked on your birth certificate as such. But the Bible doesn't call it Palestine. The Bible calls it the land of Canaan. And having called it the land of Canaan, there's some very important things to understand in relation to all of this. I want to share with you a couple of verses in regards to it in our remaining time. Genesis. And I'll, I'll read this in a moment. Look at verse 2 of Romans 11. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? And we went through this. How could God, foreknew, how could God foreknow these Israelites and then cast Israel away? And if God does that to the Israelites, then where can you even remotely consider holding on to Romans 8.28 and putting it on your greeting cards? Or certainly Romans 8.31. Nine times in the Old Testament, God is referred to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 203 times he's referred to as the God of Israel. He didn't do away with the Jews. He didn't do away with Israel. God is addressing... uh, this, this issue right here in Romans 11, 1 and 2. And again, Paul is addressing a Gentile church. A Gentile church that's sick of Jewish persecution. It's amazing how we develop theology over people we hate. Here we are in the United States of America. You look at all the secession documents of the southern states, the 11 confederate states. It all had to do with slavery. And they had Biblical justification for enslaving other human beings and calling them a lesser race. Fascinating. It's happening today. Are you Eshkenazi? Are you Sephardic Jew? Is your nose big? Where do you come from? Let's look at your birth certificate. There's growing anti-Semitism in the church and all around the world. Genesis 3 You have this idea where the Lord said that you shall bruise his heel, but he shall crush your head, and from the seed of the woman will come the Messiah in Genesis 3. Anti-Semitism is satanic. And I imagine there'll be some insulted folks in the the room. I don't seek to insult, but I'm going to be candid. It's satanic. The Egyptians tried to kill the firstborn of all the Jews to get rid of them. Anti-Semitism with the Assyrians, the Babylonians. You read the story of Haman and Esther, Mordecai. Murdering and wiping out the Jews, the Medo-Persians. Look at Rome, the anti-Semitism in Rome. Herod, Herod. You see, I say it's satanic because Satan himself, through Herod, wanted to kill the firstborn males to avoid the coming of the Messiah. She's not leaving because she's anti-Semitic. She has somewhere to go. I'm watching you all go, oh, this isn't good. <laughs> Give her a break. Herod tried to kill the firstborn because he tried to hinder. He tried to prohibit the coming of the Messiah, the birth of the Messiah. And so Herod had all the male children murdered. Murdered. Well, you know, I say it's satanic because I believe that Satan is trying to prohibit the second coming of the Lord. If he can do away with the Jewish people and there's no Israel, no temple, no return, and and we see this, and then, and it's frightening. The anti-Semitism around the world is crazy. And, and and there's folks in the room. You were raised like some folks in the South were raised with With prejudice i I remember being at Tulane University from california i 'm in the the meal line with this my brand new roommate i'd met that day. He was from Baton Rouge louisiana we're in the line uh, enormous African American football player was in front of us i'd introduced myself neat guy and we're sitting there and and Robert Allison's behind me he's the the guy on my team that I just met, my new roommate, his Bible was open when I went into the room. I'm like, praise the Lord, a Christian. It's is it King James Bible. I was like, wow, this guy's solid. And I'm in the line, and he's a, little, he's a breaststroker, swimmer, and he's tiny. He was like a little over five feet. And, uh, and this football player in front of me, he's like six, seven, just ripped. And, uh, and we're in this line. It's hot. It's a Louisiana summer. And I, I, I'm sweating. I go, man, I wonder what the delay is. Right behind me, Robert Allison goes, I bet you it's some dumb nigger. I'd never heard that na- that word. Some of you are shocked I said it. I was shocked hearing it. And and I I went, "What?" And the guy goes, "What?" And he goes and he steps out in front of me goes, "You heard what I said?" I'm looking at him. I'm thinking, "This guy has meals bigger than you." <laughs> he was ready to throw down. He had been raised with this hatred. And and and, and you just become irrational. And he's reading a Bible. And he wanted to walk me through all the justification for his hatred of a person with skin of a different color. Are you kidding me? Where do you get this stuff? It comes out of hatred. You were hurt, it comes out of fear, stories you've been told. Early church fathers believed in the millennial reign of Christ. They believed in it. Irenaeus, Tertullian, hippolytus they all believed in this. The first through the third centuries of the church were all millennialists. They believed in the thousand-year reign of Christ. Papias, who, who was discipled by Polycarp. Polycarp was discipled by John, the apostle John. This is a first-century like verbatim picture that they believed in this millennial reign of Christ. Justin Martyr, Latinius, Commodius, Tertullian. The only one who didn't was a guy named Origen. And what he did is he allegorized scripture. And, and all these prophetic end time scriptures, he allegorized them. You don't allegorize if it's not supposed to be allegorized. And he did it just to rewrite it. And the sad thing is Augustinian adopted Origen's writings and his teaching. And so what he did is, is Augustine set aside Israel. And it became predominant in the Middle Ages, this theology. That the church is now taking the place of Israel. Replacement theology. And in the Middle Ages, you had the Black Plague. And, and the Jews survived the Black Plague in, in larger numbers because of their, their, their ceremonial cleansing. The, these were things they followed, and that's why they survived the Black Plague. But, but everyone who's dying is watching Jews live. And they, they, they own the businesses, and they're living. They've obviously done this to us. And so they started to say that that the the blood of our children are in the Passover cup. And this rumor spread. And, And sadly, Martin Luther followed this theology. Martin Luther, some of you are Lutheran. Listen, Martin Luther's a believer. He did great things for the church, the Reformation. We wouldn't be here without what he did. I'm thankful for Martin Luther, but I gotta tell you, he got this one completely wrong. This is Martin Luther 1548. Ready? Speaking of the Jews. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? Since they live among us, we dare not tolerate their conduct, now that we are aware of their lying and reviling and blaspheming. If we do, we become sharers in their lies, cursing, and blasphemy. Thus, we cannot extinguish the unquenchable fire of divine wrath of which the prophets speak, nor can we convert the Jews. With prayer and the fear of God, we must practice a sharp mercy to see whether we might save at least a few from the glowing flames. We dare not avenge ourselves. Vengeance a thousand times worse than we could wish them already has been by the throat, has them by the throat. I shall give you my sincere advice. First, set fire to their synagogues or schools and bury and cover, uh, to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them This is not to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom so that is to to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom so that God might see that we are Christians and do not condone or knowingly tolerate such public lying, cursing, and blaspheming of his son and of of his Christians. For whatever we tolerate in the past unknowingly, and I myself was unaware of it, will be pardoned by God. But if we, now that we are informed, were not to protect and shield such a house for the Jews existing right before our very nose in which they lie about, blaspheme, curse, and vilify and defame Christ and us, as was heard above, It would be the same as if we were doing all this and even worse ourselves, and we very well know. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed, for they pursue them in the same aims as in their synagogues. Instead, they might be lodged under a roof or in a barn like gypsies. He says, third, I advise that their prayer books and the Talmudic writings in which such idolatry and lies, cursing and blaspheming are to be taken from them and burned. It goes on for six of these. Martin Luther Protestants because of Martin Luther. He wrote this. So vile were these writings that it's not shocking that Hitler called Martin Luther a national hero and quoted him in Mein Kampf. Short of the ovens and Auschwitz and extermination, the whole Nazi Holocaust was outlined by Martin Luther in that writing alone. Some of you are struggling with this. That's his writings, not mine. It's no wonder that Hitler and Julius Stryker quoted Martin Luther for their justification of the murder of the Jews. I have to tell you something. Martin Luther got a lot of things right, like all of you did too. And he got this one horribly wrong. Some say the Holocaust never happened. Yeah. We all live in a bubble. Read about it. God's not done with Israel. Israel is real. And it's not going anywhere. You have any questions about that? Look at 1948, 1956, 1967, 1973, 1982. Every time somebody tries to take down the Jews, they're still there. They're surrounded by enemies in a sea of of, of hatred, and they still survive. How? God. I have to tell you, Jews are a frustrating people. So are Christians. When I go to Israel and I see they're talking about life and Eliot, and they want to bring the you know, fruitfulness to the desert and on, and on. Uh, of, of all the nations in the world that, that are governed by laws, law-abiding governments, they have the highest abortion rate of any nation on the face of the earth. I look at them and I say, you're, you're wanting to bring Jews back from every other part of the world, but you're killing your own, and every time you serve in the, in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, I think you're permitted one or two abortions paid for by the government. They have an unbelievably high abortion rate. I'm shocked by it. I, I don't understand how they vote as a block. I, I struggle over many of these things, but granted, I struggle over the Christian Church as well. Abortion is present in the in the body of Christ. Our voting patterns are. Look at North Carolina. We're strange. Seventy-seven percent of the election was evangelical Christians, and they 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 were divided by three candidates. They can't. They, they don't even know what they're doing. But that doesn't that doesn't. Take away from the fact that God has ordained that they are his, they're his people. Genesis seventeen i 7. I'm almost finished. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Genesis 48, 4. and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I'll make you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you and as an everlasting possession. Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for light by night, who disturbs the sea and the waves and roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord. Last time I checked, the stars were out this morning. If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. You see, he's merciful. He's gracious. Thus says the Lord, uh, no, I've already read that. Zechariah 12, behold, I will make, Jerusalem, a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, and when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem, and in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth will be gathered together against it. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. And that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God. Like the angel of the Lord before them, it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then finally, verse 10, and I will pour out the house of David on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. And yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for the firstborn. We close this morning and prepare for communion with this mindset. The world is in turmoil. God has a plan for Israel. I don't know that we have it all laid out and we understand it completely, but I do know this. Anti-Semitism is wrong. Prejudice is wrong. The body of Christ cannot tolerate this. To hate somebody because of their race. I was I was sent emails to go to sites to read things. And as I read more and more of the author that they were seeking me to study from, I was shocked by the anti-Semitism. It exists in the body of Christ. I'm angered by it. It it must not be so. They haven't known their Messiah. There will be a second coming of the Lord. But the beauty of it is, we screw up every single day. And God works it together for good. How through the Holocaust, Israel would have a nation. And Russia would be the one to vote them in. The Balfour Agreement, in the midst of, of, of England, when it was so anti-Semitic, somehow it was established. And this nation was birthed in 1948. The only nation on the face of the earth where it was, it was a dead language and now Hebrew is spoken as a national language. Never done before in the history of the world. You can't look at that and dismiss it. And we as a people must be prepared because in the end times, there's going to be an attempt to wipe out Jews. And Christians. But I want you to rest this morning as we prepare to take communion. As our hearts are settled. And all things work together for good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He foreknew you. He predestined you. He's conformed you into the image of his son. He called. Justified. And he's glorified you no matter what's going on and no matter the turmoil in the world for both Christians and Jews if God is for us no one and nothing can be against us and I'll close with this last thought everyone who's ever tried to attack and destroy the Jews are no longer on the face of the earth you don't mess with God's people and you know what makes us God's people Jesus Christ His body was broken and his blood was shed for the remission of our sins. He was a Jew. We have a savior because of the Jewish people. We're longing that they come to realize that he is their Messiah. But today, we together in this room with a heart for God and a heart for the lost come to this table thanking God That he has justified us, cleansed us, forgiven us. He foreknew us and predestined us. And he has delivered us from death unto life. His body was broken. His blood was shed for the remission of your sins. And every screw up you've made, he's working it together for good. And he says, No matter how bad it seems right now and shocking, no one and nothing is against you because I am for you, God says. This is a communion of joy this morning. Come and take it with confidence and peace. And then leave this building with the strength and determination to not allow this scourge and this misery to exist on our earth any longer. As long as we're alive, we'll stand in opposition to it in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you, God, as we prepare to take communion. And Lord, we're so grateful you have not cast away your people. Paul declared himself to be an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, he foreknew them. And Lord, as you foreknew your people Israel, you also foreknew and predestined us that this day we would come after having given our heart to you by your grace and your mercy that we come to celebrate that we have been cleansed of all unrighteousness because of the blood of your son shed for the remission of our sins. That you cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that we're new creatures in Christ. The old is past, the new comes, all the mistakes are worked together for good. All the failures turn into grace and mercy. Lord, only you can do that. I have no idea how to explain or describe you. You're beyond my temporal mind to explain an eternal God. But we just rest in the fact that you are a triple A rated, mighty king. And we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. Bless your people now as they take communion, remembering you and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.